are such entities as Hollywood, Brazilian and Iranian cinema, film itself is an international language. For example, in 1924, a novice director travelled from London to Babelsberg to gain experience at the world's then biggest studios. There he saw firsthand German expressionist F.W. Murnau perfecting the point of view shot as well as innovating what he called the unchained camera. When the visiting director Alfred Hitchcock returned home to London, he immediately implemented Murnau's aesthetic to make his first great film, The Lodger. Since then, crucial but very unexpected global influences have resulted in some of the most exciting and significant careers. Who would Quentin Tarantino be without John Woo? Wong Kar Wai without Jean-Luc Godard, Wes Anderson without Yasujiro Ozu. Ozu was born in Tokyo on December 12, 1903, and although you would never guess it from watching his films, he was an ill-disciplined child, so often skipping school to go to the cinema, that he failed his college entrance exams. He was also a big drinker and heavy smoker, who died at the age of 60. Yet, while many of the characters in Ozu's films drink to excess, the tone and tempo of Ozu's films or displays in sobriety. Emotions are rarely on display. Anger barely ever registers, neither does sorrow. But what the audience feels is profound. That paradox extends itself to the fact that Ozu was gay and, fathering no children, his only legacy is the extraordinary body of work he left behind. Of all the great directors who have graced the medium, there are precious few who come close to the singularity and consistency of Ozu's style and substance. Simply put, Ozu remains one of the most instantly recognisable, inimitable and yet influential filmmakers the art form has ever seen. Until 1951, when Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival, Japanese cinema was an unknown, if not deliberately overlooked quantity in the West. It was not until 1957 that the British Film Institute saw fit to programme its very first season of Japanese cinema. Amongst the films screened was Ozu's 1953 masterpiece, Tokyo Story. I say 1953 masterpiece because Ozu, who directed 54 feature films in 35 years, delivered about a dozen of them, all of them coming in a blistering streak from the late 40s to the early 60s. But for most observers, his greatest and perhaps most typical achievement is the one that tells the beguilingly simple story of a retired couple, Shukishi and Tomi Hirayama, played respectively by Shishu Ryu and Shieko Higashiyama, who, in the years after World War II, travelled to Tokyo to visit their adult sons and daughters. When Tokyo Story finally screened in London, Lindsay Anderson, who, before becoming an outstanding director in his own right, wrote for Sight and Sound, was so moved by what he experienced that he felt compelled to write a review called Two Inches Off the Ground. I called the piece I wrote Two Inches Off the Ground because that was the effect which Tokyo Story had on many people in this country. Alan Watts, the English writer, said, when Professor Suzuki was once asked how it feels to have attained Satori, the Zen experience of awakening, he answered, just like ordinary, everyday experience, except about two inches off the ground. Yet, for all of Ozu's uniqueness, it is ironic that Tokyo Story is, in effect, a reworking of a seldom-seen Hollywood melodrama, Make Way for Tomorrow. Directed by Leo McCary in 1937, what precipitates an elderly couple visiting their grown-up children is that the Great Depression has resulted in the parents losing their home to the bank and they need a place to live. <laughs> 
He did say that we could take our time about moving out. Yeah, he did. Yeah. How much time did he give you, Father? Six months. Oh. Oh, well, then there's no immediate rush. <laughs> what are the six months up? Tuesday. But why didn't you tell us sooner? Well, your father and I were hoping that something would turn up and we wouldn't have to tell you at all. Sad as that is, Make Way for Tomorrow turns to heartbreak because, in another major difference between the two movies, in McCary's original, none of the sons or daughters will take both their parents, which means the elderly couple are forced to live apart. But while McCary's film is classic Hollywood melodrama, where the emotions are constantly on display. In Ozu's version, and indeed throughout his canon, his characters spend their time concealing their emotions. Here is Peter Bogdanovich, who was also a film critic before achieving great success as a director. A couple of years after I saw it, I was having dinner with Orson Welles and I said, have you ever seen Make Way for Tomorrow? He said, oh my God, that's the saddest movie ever made. It would make a stone cry. And nobody went. One of my favorite stories about that film is that the same year that he made Make Way for Tomorrow, Leo McCary won Best Director from the Academy for The Awful Truth. And he went up to receive the award. And his speech was, I want to thank the Academy for this wonderful award, but you gave it to me for the wrong picture. What makes a great director is not only the stories they tell, but more particularly, how they tell them. Depending on which theory you accept, there really are only a limited number of stories. And so, what we get is a variation of old material woven into new patterns. How filmmakers tell their stories is very much determined by what they put in the frame. What was in Ozu's frame? Almost always the same thing. Family, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, daughters, sons, young, middle-aged and elderly. Almost all in a domestic setting, but occasionally in bars, hotels, at work, or sometimes outdoors. How could a filmmaker sustain a career by filming the same things over and over? The truth is, Ozu didn't. From the end of the summer of 1890, right through to the following spring, French Impressions painter Claude Monet took it upon himself to paint the same field of haystacks in Giverny, about 80 kilometres north of Paris. The answer as to why he did something so seemingly repetitive can be found in the observation from the ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus, who said you can never step in the same river twice. In Monet's case, his use of light was a measure of this change in seasons. In Ozu's case, his use of concealed emotion is a measure of the change in families. Very often, critics fault certain films for exhibiting more style than substance. Now, some people confuse style with elegance. What is wrong with being elegant? So let us sharpen our vocabulary and say form instead of style. So some critics are saying some films have more form than content. This allows us to ask, what is form? Simply, form reveals what content alone cannot. It is the equivalent of a musician choosing to use a different instrument to play the same tune. 
or playing the same tune but using a different key. And by making different choices, a different sound is heard, so a different impact is made. Now listen to this. What you want, what have you got it? Same lyrics, but by changing vocalist, an entirely new and more acute meaning is expressed. Style expresses what substance alone cannot. In fact, style or form has advanced the art of cinema more than great stories. Think of D.W. Griffith, Sergei Eisenstein, F.W. Murnau, Carl Theodore Dreyer, Joseph von Sternberg, Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock. Another stylist was Jean-Luc Godard. But his style was to deconstruct style, take apart the form to reveal its construction, and thus lay bare the ideology that hid behind it. In Goddard's case, he saw all that as cinema's great deceit, capitalism. But while Goddard's work was vital, he was never all that interested in telling stories. He was more interested in breaking them apart. Outside of Godard, it is difficult to name a filmmaker who so consistently, so successfully and so radically broke the so-called rules of film grammar as Yasujiro Ozu. Look no further than Ozu's framing, especially in dialogue scenes, where, not always, or very often, but enough so that it could not be considered a mistake, yet rather a deliberate choice, that the eyelines don't match. Likewise, Ozu flagrantly violated another spatial rule unique to cinema, and that was crossing the line. It is an easy enough principle to follow, and while keeping the line certainly helps deliver a clear narrative, maintaining the 180 degree rule is all some filmmakers have to offer. Neat grammar, but no vocabulary. No prose, no poetry, no art. Just a series of shots, establishing, mid, over the shoulder, reverse, that make spatial and temporal sense, but give no insight into human behavior. It's often thought, I know, that films get out of date or seem old-fashioned. I don't really think they do, particularly not films that are made in the classic and absolutely straightforward spirit of Mr. Ozu. He had great understanding and that understanding is still present in his films and it's an understanding of the life that we all have to lead with an honesty that is constant. Another of Ozu's techniques was to give off-screen space its own life. Very often, when a character leaves the shot, leaving it empty, Ozu lets the image linger a few frames longer than is usually expected. Or he will begin the shot with empty space for a few frames before the character enters. Now apply that information to the structure of Tokyo Story, where Shukishi and Tomi go to visit their sons and daughters and notice the frequency with which their eldest son, Koishi, and his wife, Fumiko, their eldest daughter, Shige, and her husband, Korazo, and their youngest son and daughter, Keizo and Kyoko, talk about them when they are not there. Then consider the delicate exchange between Shukishi and Tomi and Noriko, their daughter-in-law who was widowed when Shoji, her husband, and their son, was killed during 
They never actually utter the word, but the film was made in 1953, and Shoji died barely eight years before. All those utterances refer to things not present. So, by extension for Ozu, absence is a unique form of presence. Presence through absence is a way of describing the spiritual, and a word often applied to Ozu is transcendental. Although he was by no means the first to do so, in 1972, Paul Schrader used that very word to describe Ozu's work. Graduating from UCLA with his thesis, Transcendental Style in Film, Ozu Bresson Dreyer, Schrader explained that which transcends is non-material, so you won't ever see it in Ozu's films, and neither will you hear it. But you will feel it. How? Here is Paul Schrader in 2018, speaking at the Fuller Seminary at the University of California. Transcendental style uses flat expressions, emotionless performances, often by non-actors. Sometimes scenes are played in a single master angle. No editorial winks or nudges. The viewer is not being instructed, instructed by edits. You aren't being told which character or line of dialogue is more important at this moment. The viewer's eye and interest must make its own choice as he pans across the screen to see which character he wants to concentrate at this moment. The vast majority of filmmakers use devices or tricks such as tracking shots, close-ups and music to materialise the drama, patterns to let the audience know what to think and feel. Tracking in for a close-up as the characters look off into the distance lets us know that what they are looking at signifies their ambition or desire. Ozu gives us no such clues and so he avoided such cliches. Rather, he ventured to create his own grammar, his own style, his own film form. Ozu's camera stayed away from the face, a mid-shot was as close as you got, and instead he gave you the tatami shot, an angle from low on the floor, head height as if you were sitting on a mat. Immediately, this low angle emphasises the horizontal and vertical axes within the frame, and that creates a visual symmetry and that visual symmetry finds echoes throughout Ozu's films. Tokyo Story begins and ends with shots of trains, and then images of Shukishi back where he started, sitting in exactly the same position. For an artist who placed such a belief in symmetry, it is only fitting that Ozu died on December 12, 1963, 60 years to the day after he was born. On his gravestone is inscribed one ancient Japanese character, Mu, the Zen concept of the emptiness that defines presence. A thing is a thing because it is not nothing. Ozu himself may be gone, but his genius remains. His presence is felt, and the emotions it brings are very, very deep. Very, very deep.